Hello and welcome to Red Rose Spotlights. This is the series where we have a discussion with Labour Party activists across the spectrum, from people I find interesting to people who are behind some fascinating causes. Uh, joining me today is Tessa Milligan, who is the co-chair of Open Labour. Hello. Hiya, how are you? Oh, I'm doing smashing. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Tired, but good. I, I think that's every Labour Party person, to be quite honest. <laughs> especially after the last election. Ooh. Now, um, as is typical with this podcast, we are not going to muck around with some idle chat at the start. We are going to get straight into the questions. Now, to perhaps just kick it off and kind of get a feel for um, your sort of background, could you tell us how you got involved in the Labour movement and what the driving forces were behind you becoming an activist? I was born into the trade union movement. One of my earliest memories when I was about five years old was a firefighters demo against cuts to the fire service deregulation under the last Labour government. And both of my parents worked for trade unions and both of my grandfathers, Ben Rubner, my grandpa Ben was the general secretary of the furniture, timber and allied trade union, which has since merged to become part of the GMB. And then my other grandpa, Neil Milligan, was General Secretary of Aslef and he worked with the other rail unions to win the only public sector pay rise under Margaret Thatcher that there ever was. So my family are a huge motivator for me and it meant that because of my background, joining the Labour Party was like a natural transition. So yeah, that, that that's my big driving force is my family and, and their other experiences as well, you know, as migrants, some of them as refugees. And that, that's really, really formed my politics and my outlook in life. So being born into the trade union movement and obviously with quite the, if you might say so, formidable family background of uh, you know, activism. When did you first become involved with Labour politics? Like what was your first kind of campaigns? How I really got active in the Labour Party was when Brexit started happening. After the referendum, I remember being really disappointed. And then when I saw what I felt was a lack of a strong, decisive response from the Labour Party on Brexit, I woke up one day, <laughs> my life wasn't going the way I'd planned, politics wasn't going the way that I'd hoped. And I said, you know, screw this, I'm gonna get involved. So it, it, my journey through the Labour Party really, you know, began to get active around Brexit and then later it kind of evolved into concerns around anti-Semitism in the party as well. And, it, you know, it all kicked off from there, really. And then I found myself in open Labour kind of as a refuge, I guess, for, you know, as a somebody who was opposed to Brexit, but on the left and also as a Jewish member, you know, joining a group within the party who are all about culture change that was really where where i found solace and what exactly is open labor in your own words like what's the driving force behind the organization what are its aims open labor is the open left we're democratic socialists um, who want to build a green economy we also want healthy political culture not just within our own party but within uk politics and that includes stuff like reforming the house of lords to be a fully elected chamber and um, looking at proportional representation and electoral reform and we're also grassroots led we're very much led by our members we're a group which doesn't take members for granted we put you at the heart of everything we do and we think that the labor party should reflect that way of working as well you kind of went into open labor and then about you know three years on from your sort of revelation that you're gonna to have to get involved and 
make a change in politics and the way it was going. You are now co-chair of it. So far, what has been your kind of standout achievement of the role or the bit that you feel most proud about? Yeah, I never expected to be co-chair of Open Labour when I joined. It's very strange how things evolve and happen and opportunities fall into your lap. But I think my my proudest achievement actually was was before I was co-chair, I would say, was when I was on the last committee in a different role. And we won the STV campaign, which was the campaign for, it's not a very glamorous issue, but it's really, really important if we want to change the culture of our party. It was the campaign to elect the CLP representatives on Labour's NEC, the National Executive Committee, which is the governing body of our party, by the single transferable vote system, which, you know, I I was proud to spearhead that campaign and I wrote about it in Labour List. It was something I was really, really passionate about and has been long-standing open Labour policy. And when we won it, it was a really brilliant feeling that, you know, things were changing, that these NEC elections would be very different to the last. Not in terms of the result, we, we have yet to see what will happen, but in terms of how the elections have been conducted, I do think there's a noticeable difference and it's broken the old sweeping slate culture of you know this kind of wild seesaw that members get on and one day it thuds all the way to one side and the next day it thuds all the way to the other as you know the slate of nine takes up all the positions and then next time it it can go wildly the other way it's going to foster I think a much more collaborative atmosphere within the party and it's meant that members have to really look into who they're voting for um, and that candidates have to work harder to get your vote and to appeal to a broader base of members, which, which helps with accountability because it means that they're accountable to a broader base of members as well once they're elected. So I'd say that that's my favourite thing that I've done on Open Labour Committee so far, even if it happened before I was co-chair. That's, a, that's perfectly fine. Don't worry about it. Now, I, I actually, one of the reasons why I've been very excited to have you on the podcast is because, um, as we can tell from your answers, you're very passionate about creating and fostering this you know political culture where it's healthy to have disagreement it's healthy to have different contrasting voices on committees and what have you so to borrow your analogy that you used in one of your answers there i want to violently seesaw from one group to another because I, I figure the best way of talking about this internal culture would be talk- by talking about thing which this podcast has kind of almost specialized in in terms of its coverage the young labor elections what i want to know really is how does young labor compare to these kind of ideals that you talk about and what open labour strives for? Young Labour's a tricky one because Young Labour has some representatives who are incredibly hardworking, passionate, really want the best for the youth wing and are exemplary models of behaviour in Young Labour and have incredible ideas. The culture of Young Labour is bigger than just a handful of people. It is a widespread issue that there is toxicity as a kind of normalization of very aggressive hostile communication towards one another which is really disenfranchising and that's not what our youth wing should be about when the party invests in its youth wing it is investing in its future and when i look at other youth wings in our sister parties so uh, whether that's some of our european sister parties or more widely across the world they recognize that their youth wing is the perfect place to train up their activists 
you know, door knocking and leafleting are really, really valuable skills that our party offers a lot of guidance on when it comes to election time. There's lots of other activist skills as well that we could be investing in. And that's stuff like like pathways into trade unionism and community organising. Most importantly, leadership. I know so many young Labour members who would make incredible candidates at at all levels in the party. I'd really love to see more young councillors who can bring youth issues to the table at council level, be that youth knife crime or housing or how our schools and education system are run. And, you know, maybe I've gone slightly off on a tangent, but Ultimately, young Labour's culture really needs a dramatic change. Some of it is symptomatic of wider problems in the party and a wider hostile culture in the party, which is gradually changing, I believe. Do you think that this toxicity and kind of hostile internal culture then could be not fully but potentially traced to the way in which the elections work in Young Labour in terms of the fact that it's slates, you're either kind of in one group or another and despite the fact that there are a couple of fantastic independents, you don't tend to get them actually being elected on the committees. It's either seen as a win for the left or the right of the party. Yeah, I think you're seeing that quite a lot in this election in the sense that there's multiple candidates with, you know, significant support behind them running for the same role, you know, across our regions and nations. Really incredible activists. They'd all be much better served by STV. It would, first of all, you would not get nearly the same level of negative campaigning because you in STV you are depending not just on first preferences but on second, third, maybe fourth or fifth preferences as well if you want to get elected. If you're busy, you know, calling people and different traditions within the Labour Party names or being seen to be running a hostile campaign, you're not going to benefit under STV the way that you do under first pass the post and I've been really disappointed and quite shocked to see I mean I wasn't involved in the last young labour election I didn't even know it was happening I didn't vote in it I must say that was also my experience um yeah this was a I think I only knew about young labour existing since 2019 onwards yeah I I think I'm possibly the same as you on that and I I've been really shocked to see the treatment that people have gotten, you know, we've had people drop out already because under first pass a post, there's this pressure from people running rival campaigns that is put on you to drop out of the race or to not run in the first place. And first past the post, you know, because that's what people point to to justify their harassment of other candidates into not running. First past the post is directly exacerbating discouragement of talented young activists from putting themselves forward for these elections. And I I firmly believe that using STV in the young Labour elections would make a significant step in the right direction in terms of reforming our, our culture our internal culture now you're quite as, as obviously people listening could hear you're quite up to scratch on a knowledge of stv having you know fought a campaign to get it on applied for the um, clp nec rep how would young labor actually go about getting this on would somebody need to first win the position of chair and have the committee approve it or could a conference motion get it through young labor as far as i know only gets one motion to conference a year 
firstly that needs to change because youth issues can't get lost in you know the swathe of of motions that are put to conference every single year. Young Labour represents over a hundred thousand members. I'm not sure many people realise this and I know that somebody else who was on your podcast, Kathleen Clark, who's the Open Labour candidate for chair, mentioned that the size of Young Labour alone, the size of Labour Party's youth wing alone, is bigger than the entire Lib Dem membership. That is deserving of more than just one single motion a year. So I would start by changing that. However, for STV, I'm not quite sure the party rulebook or the mechanisms for changing the electoral system, but I think if you elect the people who are willing to make it happen, who have tangible policies for changing the culture within Young Labour and making it somewhere which is enfranchising and supportive for young members, and somewhere where toxicity is eradicated and unacceptable, you know, you've got to put in you know, the committee members, you've got to elect the committee members who are going to lobby to make that happen. But they also need support. And it's also about grassroots support in Young Labour um, to rally around these ideas and put pressure on the party and say, we are 100,000 members strong, our youth wing, and this is what we need and this is what we want. And you need to support us in achieving these aims because, you know, one person isn't going to change it. it it's about collectively bandying together and demonstrating that there is substantial grassroots support for an idea and that's one thing that we did in the stv campaign was that we demonstrated that there was broad grassroots support for this idea we we ran a petition like open letter type thing which hundreds of members signed and that was really instrumental in changing people's minds within the party structures that okay this is a really good idea and this is what members want and the same needs to happen in young labor now i fear that we are beginning to run out of time so we're going to go from talking about ideas which would benefit Young Labour and the Labour Party in general to an idea which might benefit the whole country in general, for it is the signature question on this podcast. Let's just pretend that you have a 650-seat majority in the House of Commons. The House of Lords is completely on your side, and the Supreme Court is not going to kick off us in the slightest. You have just enough time to put forward one piece of policy before you are then forced out of power by either a snap election or internal coup i mean it's the labor party so that is possible what do you do you can strengthen something you can repeal it bring an entire new policy or whatever what do you do and why i would bring back the um widowed parents allowance and strengthen it it was first brought in under as far as i know under a labor government in 1946 which was obviously just after a world war and a time when a lot of people were experiencing loss. And as somebody who, you know, my mum my died a few years ago. And one thing that a lot of people don't talk about in death, which appears to be a taboo subject I found, um, I don't mind talking about it. But one thing that people don't talk about is the economic shock of a death, as well as dealing with the emotional effects of losing somebody in your family. You also deal with the economic shock of... <laughs> quite literally the practical implications of somebody bringing in you know substantial perhaps the only household income to to your family and the conservative party under Theresa May um significantly weakened the bereavement benefit um it used to apply um to parents with children all the way up until they were 18 years old and now <laughs> now that has been cut down to 
18 months and it's been uh, significantly watered down in terms of how much you get we are I mean I would change it any anyway but now that we're experiencing pandemic there's so many people in this country who are experiencing loss and unimaginable grief and pain and the worst thing you can do is pile on financial stress um, onto that pain and I really really believe that the government should bring back the real widowed parents allowance and support grieving families and that is the one thing that I would change if I could there's lots of other things I'd love to do I'd love to end child poverty and scrap tuition fees and reform the education system and you know lower votes to the 16 but ultimately like one of the biggest things I think would help right now is is bringing back that financial support for bereaved families thank you for that answer we get we get a lot of different ones and it's always nice when somebody comes on actually with policy which actually you know relates to them quite personally I'm sure he won't mind me calling him out right now but um I think the, some of the more niche ones we've had was uh, Jacob Allen of Guildford who, when discussing his policy, wants to reverse the 1963 Railways Act. So, you know, we welcome a variety of answers, and I'm sure we'll have you back on at some point so you can expand the policies you get to implement, perhaps during a random second one-day term. Yeah, I would love to do that. (laughs) That's wonderful. And I I would love to carry on this conversation, but I am really afraid we have run out of time. Now, we've talked a lot about STV within this podcast, so you'll find in the description um, some links to Open Labour articles discussing the benefits of STV. Uh, equally, you're also going to find a link to Tessa's social media account where you can follow her there, as well as the Open Labour ones. If you're interested in keeping up to date with Red Rose Reporting, simply give us a follow on Twitter at Red Reporting or search Red Rose Reporting on Facebook. Tessa, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you. Thank you, you too. And thank you for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>